Well, thanks, Ernest. Good evening and welcome to Uni Church. I want to add my welcome to Andrews. Um, so great to be in God's Word and to be in the Old Testament. Um, we've got so much, as Andrew said at the start of uh, tonight, to learn from God and the way He's acted throughout history. And so as we get to this book of Amos, why don't we pray and ask God to shape us by His Spirit tonight to understand what He has to say for us and to challenge our world. Why don't you join me? Lord God, we come with all sorts of things going on in our worlds. But we are so thankful that you are a God who is not silent, that you are the God who has spoken, and that in your word we see that it is living and active. We ask tonight as we step into this book of Amos and hear what is going on in, in this time, that you'd help us to see its relevance for how we act today, and that we might go away having seen you afresh, to see what sort of God you are, to understand you more, and to know how to live in your world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, multiculturalism has been kind of the buzzword of the last century, you'd say. All throughout New Zealand, we've been excited about this multicultural society that we live in. Since the 1970s, the New Zealand government has attempted to articulate what the Treaty of Waitangi referred to as the coexistence of two distinct cultures, Māori and non-Māori, in partnership. We call it biculturalism. And biculturalism has been so strong in this identity we have as a nation. And it's this idea that two cultures can exist side by side in harmony and partnership with one another. As you look at the stats of New Zealand, uh, our immigration numbers are at about 140,000 people were moving into New Zealand every year pre-COVID. 140,000 people migrating to New Zealand. In the year 2020, it peaked at 184,000 people migrating to New Zealand per year. Our country is increasingly being filled with a myriad of different cultures. In 2018, 25% of people living in New Zealand were born overseas. One in four were born in, in somewhere else. In Auckland, that number raises to 43%. That means almost one out of every two people were born somewhere else. Our society has become incredibly multicultural. And that means that we as a society are going to have different ways of thinking, different values of what matters most, of how we, we think and eat and act and speak, different views on what's acceptable and unacceptable, what's right and wrong. The question God's Word brings into view for all of us today then is, as we start the book of Amos, what happens when cultures collide? How do we work out what's right and, and what isn't when there are so many different cultures coming together? A number of years ago, I was speaking at a conference for church planters on church planting and how we see the gospel bear fruit in different cultures. And before this event kind of kicked off, the organizers were like, oh, we don't have any stools for you to, to sit on. It was on a panel with one other person. We we're doing the section I was speaking at. And so they went outside and they got a table. You know those outdoor kind of picnic tables that have got the table and then the, the two chair wood things connected? And they kind of brought that in and it was up the front as kind of a bit of a prop. And so the main speaker did their talk. And then um, this other person and I then stepped up and they kind of moved the table to the middle. And we sat on the table with our feet up on the chair bit and then just had this chat. It felt pretty casual. It went really well. Talked about cultural appropriation. And for some of you in the room right now, you're like, ah, Rowan, what did you do that for? I was blissfully unaware I'm sitting there going, no, this is fine. In Australia, we sit on tables all the time and chat to people. There's no problems at all. Got to question time. We'd been talking about how important it was to understand the culture. Someone puts up their hand and says, are you aware that in Maldorian Pacific Island culture, 
sitting on a table like you are doing right now is incredibly offensive. Now, I'm pretty sure my face went red at that point, (laughs) because my answer was, no, <laughs> I'm not aware of that reality. And, and, I, and I wasn't at that point at all. And I'm like, look, if it's helpful, we'll step off. And we stepped off and we, we then kind of talked through it's important to try and recognize the cultures of the people that you're reaching and understanding that. And that's why that's important. And kind of we moved on. It was a bit awkward at that moment. Uh, the person came to chat to us afterwards and just said, oh, look, I just want, you know, want to chat with you a little more and explain why that's so important. Uh, and she explained that to me. And then I said, I, I just want to raise one thing with you. Are you aware that by calling out those in authority, those who are speaking, you dishonoured them up the front, which to every Asian in the room was incredibly offensive. She's like, no, I hadn't even thought of that. I was like, see, what do we do when the different cultures that are in the room clash? When there are different ways that we we need to kind of think and different ways that we're um, offended? The question is, in a multicultural society, how do we work out what is right and wrong? If you turn on the news, that issue of right and wrong is incredibly important. We hear international kind of acts couched in terms of of morality and moral language, be it wars, this is an immoral act of this nation to come in and invade another nation, or economic policy, the way we're, we're treating certain people, or different health acts, that's immoral to have this kind of pushed on me or to not have a vaccination pushed on people. We, we talk about what is right and wrong in the news all the time. We hear about businesses that are acting immorally to their people, or we want them to be ethically healthy and, and running well. But when it comes to our individual actions, we champion inclusivity and tolerance and diversity. We celebrate you do you. If you just do you, then that's great. You can have your morals, you can live your way, and as long as as it doesn't impact me badly, that's fine. I mean, the only thing that we say that we can't do is something that's criminal or sit on a table, I found out. (laughs) But the important thing to notice here is that while nations and businesses are being called to have a higher and higher morality, personally, we're relativizing morality. We're encouraging one another to be amoral, outside of a moral framework, accepting all. And as we turn to this book of Amos and start this new series in it, we're going to find a book that speaks not only to God's people, Israel, but to the nations in the whole earth. It's quite unusual to find a prophet speaking to the nations around them. And it brings into question, where is my personal sense of morality? How do I work out what is right and wrong? And how do the nations around me work that out? Well, in chapter 1, verse 1, we're introduced to Amos, who is a multinational prophet. That's our second point in the outline, if you're following on. Amos is this multinational prophet who speaks to a multicultural society. Look with me, Amos 1.1. The word of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So as we begin the book of Amos, we find out that he's into sheep like we are. You're like, this is great. We know this guy. And he's from a place called Tekoa, which is right next to Hamna Springs. I looked it up. I googled Tekoa and up came this little place next to Hamna Springs. I'm pretty sure that that's not him. <laughs> no, Tekoa is about 18 kilometers south of Jerusalem in Judah. And you see it on a map on the screen now. You've got um, Israel up the top there and Judah. That was the promised land. It got divided into two. Now, this is really, really important. 
And we can get this from the text, that, that what was the promised land where all of God's people were, has just a few years earlier been divided into two. You've got Israel in the north, up there, and then Judah in the south. And the way you can work it out from the text is, you see that he says, in the times of King Uzziah of Judah, south, that's where Jerusalem is, and Tekoa, just down there. And then Jeroboam, who is king of the north. There are two kingdoms, two nations. It had happened just a couple of generations after King David and Solomon. Now, if you're thinking about timelines and the timeline of all of human history, maybe this image pops into your head. You think, David and Solomon lived around 1000 BC. That's my dating. That bit, David and Solomon just there, that partial kingdom, Samuel, Saul, David, Solomon, a thousand years before Christ. And then a couple of generations after, there's this kind of um, civil unrest, they turn against each other, there's stupidity of kings, and the kingdom split. Ten tribes go north, called the Northern Kingdom, or Israel. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, go south and stay where they are. And that's where Jerusalem is. That's kind of like the heartland. But these other tribes, there's ten of them and they go north. And at the time Amos is speaking, we're around about here. There you go. 150 years after the split of the kingdom. We're around the year 800 to 750 BC. We've got two nations uh, of God's people, Israel and Judah, and they've not been taken into exile yet. That's important to know for later. Exile is when the other nations come in and smash them and, and distribute them, and you see that happening. Northern Kingdom, a bit further on, gets exiled to Assyria. Southern Kingdom gets deported to Babylon. Uh, they're different times, but that's coming up. And that's important to know because we're going to hear a whole heap of warnings for God's people to return to Him and we'll see what happens if they don't. Sorry about the spoiler. Amos is from the south, uh, and so he's from Judah. And, but what we're told at the start is that he's going to speak to Israel. He's going to go to a nation that's not his own and tell them what God says. Now, you can imagine that's not going to go super well. Be like an Australian coming to New Zealand and saying, hey, you guys all need to change your, your way of doing things, you need to wear gold and stop playing rugby. Right, it, no one laughed. You don't really care. I tell you, I've tried it. It doesn't go well. People don't go, yes, Rowan, from Australia. That's a great thing to do. Well, you've actually got to recognize that when an Australian walks into New Zealand, we've got to shut up and listen and learn. But Amos is going to go into this very different territory and speak of what the true and living God says to them. Now, Israel, and by that I mean the northern ten kingdoms at this point, they've been under the leadership of Jeroboam and it's probably the most successful they've been in a military sense ever. Even more so than, than David and Solomon. More battles won, more conquering happened. In fact, at this point in time, Israel is the superpower of the day. It had just conquered Aram, the nation up to its northeast. And all the wealth of Aram was flowing into Israel. Israel were rolling in it. There was money everywhere. They were like, ka-ching, we just won lotto. We've got all this stuff we've taken over. We've got so much money that we do not know what to do with it. Problem was, they didn't know what to do with it. In fact, they handled it really, really badly. Those in power kept the wealth for themselves, and those who, who weren't in power were actually in poverty. And so there's this great division between the wealthy and the needy. And so as wealth and affluence reigned in Israel, so did greed and injustice immorality and irreligion. And the nations around wanted nothing to do with God and were living their own way as well. And what you'll find is that there are many similar similarities of what's happening here in Amos to the age that we live in today. They even have a life-defining earthquake. Did you see that? 
two years before the earthquake, Amos says. He's, he's saying these things, to, well, at this point, recording it, two years before the big earthquake came. Now, that tells us that there's a date marker there, because we, kind of, we, we mark things by the earthquake. If I was to say to you, two years before the earthquake, what year would I be talking about? 2009, right? Because the earthquake was in 2011, and so two years before was 2009. Except if you live in the Hawke's Bay. In the Hawke's Bay, if I said the earthquake, what year would you say? Oh, close, guys. 31. 3rd of February, 1931. Huge earthquake. 258 people died. The sea floor lifted 2.7 metres. Like the floor of a sea is like, whoop, up we go. In fact, the Hawke's Bay Airport, Napier Airport, um, was underwater until that earthquake. Like, the earth, like, they hadn't built the airport. It wasn't like an underground Nautilus sea adventure, like a kids' holiday program. But the land that it's on came up from this earthquake. And so, for the people of Hawke's Bay, that's the earthquake. That's the kind of big one. But there's more going on here for Amos than just mere dating. He said these things happened two years before the earthquake, two years before God shook the world. God had something to say to the world and he was going to say it. And then there's going to be something that's going to make him heard. This picture of an earthquake was a sign of the roar of God's judgment for the way Israel had been acting. Look at verse 2. Amos said, The Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the summit of Carmel withers. We're going to see over the next few weeks that God has a bit to say to the nation of Israel. But it's not only them that he has a word for. It's Judah to the south, and this week, very clearly, to the nations of the world. And as we progress through the book of Amos, God's going to shake our foundations of our ideas and our natural, our national and cultural identity. He's going to speak into a multinational and multicultural world so that we might see very clearly who it is that sets right and wrong, who it is that sets morality, and how we test the realities of our cultures and how we act. So as we open up what God says to the nations around, we see this very clear point. God, the God of the Bible, is the God of all nations. The God of all nations, point number three. Let's hear what he has to say. And basically, God starts out cataloging the moral failings of all the nations around and surrounding Israel. And they're no small failings. Damascus, what they did, they ran threshing sledges over the captives of Gilead. You know, the sledges that would thresh all the wheat, they took them to the people they had captive and threshed them with them. Innocent people, innocent people that couldn't do anything, they, they, they wiped them out. Gaza is the next one that he talks about. They, they exiled a whole community. Today we call that ethnic cleansing. Tyre did the same thing, handed a whole community over um, and broke a treaty of brotherhood. They had a treaty with, with Israel. They did it to God's people. They broke their promises, even though they had this agreement. Edom pursued his brother with a sword and stifled his compassion and harbored their rage incessantly. The Ammonites, they ripped open the pregnant women to enlarge their territory. Right? You hear that and you're like, yeah, that's not good. That's not something that we actually want to say is good in any way, shape, or form. And Moab burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. You're like, okay, what's with that? Well, when you're in battle, you kind of beat the king and you kill the king, and usually then you respect the king by treating them properly. But what Moab did was, they got the king, they killed the king of Edom, and then they're like, as he was dead, let's burn him. 
Let's make it even stronger. And so they kind of abused his body after death, rejoicing in the execution of their enemy and poked fun at him. As God speaks through Amos, he speaks not only to his people, but nations around him saying, it matters how you act. This is a a rap sheet of, of war crimes, full of evil and hatred. Now, for us today, so often we can look at the world around us and, and look at the wars that are going on and the violence that happens, and the rape and abuse, and we see nations committing all sorts of atrocities. And I find myself asking the question, what can we do? How can someone like me or you stop what's going on? Will justice ever reign? How do we see these injustices stop? But what we see in Amos is a reality that we need to get into the center of our minds, Justice will come on earth to everyone. These nations that presume they've got away with it are about to meet their maker. It's really interesting that to each of these cities, Amos introduces God, not just as God, not just as the Lord, but if you look in your Bibles, you see it's Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Now, when our Bibles do that, they're translating God's personal name, Yahweh. And the reason they, they don't say Yahweh is because the Jews wanted to keep the Ten Commandments and didn't want to use the Lord's name in vain. So they're like, well, the best way not to use the Lord's name in vain is just to never use it. And so we'll just put in Lord, or in Hebrew, Adonai there. And so that's what they do. They say, God, they talk about Adonai, the Lord, but it's saying His personal name. And as God speaks, He speaks to these nations, introducing Himself, I am Yahweh. I'm in control of everything. That's an interesting side note. In chapter 4, I think it is, um, our Bibles talk about the Lord God and God's all in capitals. That's because in the original Hebrew, it says um, Adonai Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, but you can't say Lord, Lord. So they've gone, okay, well, for for Yahweh now, we'll translate it God. Um, But anyway, that's what's happening with the capitals in your Bible. So as these nations hear what Amos has to say, they're hearing the God of the universe. They're hearing the words of the one who spoke and creation came into being, the words that will bring judgment on the nations. And every nation mentioned here, the outlook's not great. Fire will come. Their leaders will be abolished. Their nations defeated. And in a sense, Israel hear this. God's people hear this and go, yes, the nations around us will get what they deserve. God is just. You go smash them, God. And they're they're standing there being like, yeah, I just want to watch the smoke go up. I'm looking forward to this day. And there's a sense where you can... Relate to that, isn't there? When injustice happens, when things aren't the way they ought to be and people just get away with evil and you're just longing for the day that justice is delivered, there's something right about it. The thing to note here is that God through Amos is calling out the nations around him and around Israel. And it's important to see some of the geography so we understand what's going on. Here's a bit more of a 3D map of Israel. And the nations that he calls out, Damascus at the top and Tyre, and on the side it's Ammon and Moab, and down the bottom it's Edom and Gaza. There's this clear message God is giving to those that are in this promised land, to Israel and Judah, is that no matter where you go, no matter what direction you go from here, I'm still God. I'm still in control. You cannot go anywhere that is outside of my control and my justice. See, this God, Yahweh, He's not some backstreet cowboy. He's not some local deity, this little strip of land on the edge of the Mediterranean. 
He's not just got a few Asherah poles and some incense burning and he kind of nods his head in some local neighborhood Thai restaurant and that's about it. He's the one and true God over the whole universe. Unlike these little small gods of the nations around them who are deaf and dumb idols made by human hands, this is Yahweh and he speaks and his justice will come. And that tells us something incredibly important about the nature of a true and living God. You can't hide from this God. You can't live and think that your actions will be out of His gaze, that you can get away with anything. You can't, you can't marginalize Him and say, well, well, He's just the God of those Christians. No, He's the God of the whole universe. He made everyone. He sustains the universe. You can't say He's not relevant to me. Our actions, our works, our thoughts, our lives, all of it are accountable to the true and living God. I think one of the reasons that we don't recognize that today and why the nations around didn't recognize it then was actually because of God's character. See, because God is certainly just, but His justice is slow. He's a God who is slow to anger and compassionate. He doesn't just come out of the gates and smash down us on the first thing that we do wrong. And you actually see that throughout. The whole way that this chapter is set up, the the phrase is repeated for three crimes, even four. Did you see that? Look on the screen, Amos 1.3. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four. For Gaza, three crimes, even four. For Tyre, three crimes, even four. The consistent pattern is God is saying, I'm not just coming down on you with the first thing you've done wrong. You guys have done a lot wrong. I've been patient. I've been waiting. You have not returned to me. You have not treated me as we ought. What we see is that God is personally involved with His justice. He's not some creator that's hanging back somewhere. He sees what goes on and and it pains Him to see injustice happen. And He's there watching and going, don't do it again, but they do it again. Don't do it again. But He's patient. He's so unlike me. When my kids do stuff wrong, first time they do it wrong, I just want to say, nah, too bad, you've lost it. You looked at a screen when you weren't allowed to look at a screen. Go to your room, $5 fine. You can never look at a screen ever again in your life. Right? That's what I literally say sometimes. And I'm just like so quick to be like, no, have you ever played sport and someone cheats? You're like, what? They cheated right here. Or you're playing cards and you're like, no, and you want to call them out and you want to ban them from the game and you want to get rid of them. And, you know, we want to enact justice and vengeance in that moment, but... But not God. He's slow to anger, compassionate, giving people every opportunity to repent and come back to Him, to seek forgiveness for not recognizing Him as God, every opportunity to make restitution and to put things right or at least try to do so. And He's slow and measured in His justice. Do you know how we can know that? Because you and I are alive today. If He did what each of us deserved, which is to take away the life that He's given us, every single one of us would be, would be dead right now. We, we don't deserve to be in God's presence because we've rejected Him. We don't deserve to be alive. But He's slow and measured in His justice, giving people time to come to Him. But here's the thing. We must never interpret the slowness of God as if God will never act. Because His justice is certain. And when that time comes... His justice will be delivered. There is no turning back. It will be too late for repentance, too late for forgiveness. Don't interpret God's justice and slowness as though He doesn't care. 
or that he doesn't see. No, Amos talks about him as a lion. And we're about to hear his roar to the nations. Now, personally, I've never been face-to-face with a lion. I don't know if you have. I've been behind an enclosure where there's glass and the lions walk past and in a park where there's a good fence between me and the lion. But I've never been to one of those crazy African parks where you're actually with the lions and they're frolicking around and you're kind of out there. I think it's a little bit stupid. But anyway, but in God's sovereignty this week, he organized an illustration for me in Sydney, which is so good. See, at Taronga Zoo in Sydney, where they've got four lions, they had a bit of an event last week where two hours before opening time, they found that four of their lions had escaped. I kid you not. And they worked out then, later on by video, there was 10 minutes where they didn't know the lions were out. There was 10 minutes where they thought they were in their cages, but actually they were roaming in the next section out, just walking around, looking for someone to chew, looking for something to see. And then they reported in the news that there was actually one family of four there that night. They were spending a night in the zoo in a tent with this zoo that they had a program called the Roar and Snore Package. Now, I'm pretty sure hearing the roar of a lion behind a safety enclosure, like I've done, eh, isn't that scary? But if you were in a tent, (laughs) and you knew the lions were out, and you heard a roar very close to you, it wasn't the case, they were in a different section, so it's all right, but imagine, I'd imagine you'd prick your ears very quickly, because the reality is, if it comes between me and a lion, I'm a goner. So as Amos speaks to the nations and to Israel, he says, listen to the roar of God, it is close. Amos here gives this roar of God. And the thing is, the thing that's the most scary, this roar is directed at them. And there's a sense where it's directed at every nation that thinks it can stand on its own in rebellion against God without facing His justice. The roar of God is against every person who thinks we can create a morality of our own apart from the one who made us. What we're going to see here is that morality, what is right and wrong, is not determined by our culture. It's not determined by our nation's laws. Right and wrong is determined by the God who made us and sustains us. As we go through the book of Amos, we're going to see that God's justice is so good and right. And His justice is for all the nations, even those that don't acknowledge Him, even those that reject Him. And that means we cannot excuse our actions by saying, oh, that's just a different culture. No, we're going to see in Amos, the God of Amos is the God of all cultures. He's the God of all nations and He's the God of all cultures as well. What is culture? Well, culture is defined like this on the screen as the ideas, customs and social behavior of a particular people or society. Now, as we see the cultures and customs that we have, we're going to see God speaks into them. If He's the God of all nations, if He can go to the nations around Israel and say, no, I'm going to call you to account, that means that there is no area of life that can be cordoned off from the justice of God. As if we can just say, oh, look, that's just the way my culture does it. That's just how we live. It's just how we do things. What God shows us through Amos is that immorality is immorality, whether it's culturally acceptable or not. I don't get to be rude to you just because I'm Australian, just because that's the way my culture kind of operates. I don't get to do that. See, there's no cultural immunity card 
that somehow excuses us from the justice of the true and living God. If you've been with us over the last few weeks as we've gone through the book of Revelation, you would have seen the reality of the judgment of God on that last day. Have a look, Revelation 20, verse 12. John talks about seeing what happens at the end. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. In other words, everyone. And the books were opened. The dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Each one was judged according to their works. God sees all and knows all. He sees the way we act. He sees the motives of our hearts. He sees the way we try and excuse things just because of our culture, because it's the way the world around us does it. And what we find out is it's not okay. Cannibalism is wrong, according to God. Irrespective of the cultural norms that might have seen it as acceptable at one point in one certain nation. The Hindu practice of sati, where when a husband dies, uh, the widow is burned alive, either willingly or unwillingly, that's wrong. Irrespective of its long historical culture. Irrespective of the fact that some people try and say, well, you know, it would have been really bad for them to be alive because their husband's dead, so they would have been poor and impoverished, so let's just burn them anyway. No, that's wrong. It's immoral. It will come under the judgment of God. Sacrificing children to Malak or the Aztec or Inca gods was wrong. We can't stand back and go, oh, well, that was just what they did at that time and that's okay. No, because we are responsible to the true and living God. They will be responsible for the way they've acted, even though many of them never heard of this God called Yahweh. What we see is God holds his standard of justice to all. Wrong is wrong and God is just. He's not restricted in his justice by national boundaries or or religious sensitivities or cultural norms. The history of the missionary movement has sometimes had a pretty bad rap by kind of cultural relativists and anthropologists. But faced with the crimes of humanity or, or inhumanity that the missionaries came across in the 19th and 20th century, they did the right thing in mitigating evil, of of stamping out the way that that people were acting. And in fact, if they hadn't spoken out against it, they would have been held in contempt for allowing such dreadful practices to continue. You cannot stand and say, oh, that's okay. Well, you can, but you can't say it's okay and never face the justice of God. It got me thinking, where do you and I excuse our sin because of our culture? Where do we say that? That's just the way we do things and that's all right. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever spent some time thinking through, where do, where do we go? Oh, that's just what my family's always done. Maybe it's, it's, it's a lie to cover up shame. That's just what we do. It's fine. It's not that bad a thing. It's, it's culturally the way that it happens. Or perhaps breaking the law because everyone around us does it. I see the way culture shapes the way I speak about Jesus. The culture around me doesn't think that Talking about Jesus who's risen from the dead is is appropriate. And so I pull back on sharing the news of Jesus, of of what I actually believe, because it's not culturally accepted by my friends. Whether it's what we think about different cultures' view of their gods or of their creation story, of who owns what and where. Cultural appropriation of morality is still sin. If it's wrong, it's wrong. For me, as I look at our nation, the glaringly obvious application is abortion, isn't it? Now, I know abortion is a complex issue that's touched many of us in in really deep and hurtful ways. 
And the situations that lead to making such a huge decision can often be horrific. But if life starts at conception, which I'm convinced it does, which the New Zealand Health Framework starts life at conception, the first thousand days start from conception, and that's what our New Zealand kind of health system and doctors are pushing, then every abortion is a termination of someone. Someone who never got the chance to speak for themselves. Who never got the chance to hear outside of the womb the news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And we as a nation, we celebrate the freedom that we have. The freedom to abort children. It's just so wrong. We consider ourselves enlightened people. When thousands upon thousands of children who can't speak for themselves are silenced permanently. That's not okay. Now, we need to be loving and caring for women and, and for, for, for husbands and men that, that have gone through this and that are going through it and thinking about it. We need to think through this complex issue. But to stand back and go, yep, that's all right. That's the best way to go forward. It's not okay. Biculturalism isn't going to fix that issue. Recognizing that we've got different cultures and that we can coexist together. Nor is multiculturalism. Just saying, oh, it's all right, your views are okay for you and my views are okay for me. How do we see morality changed? How do we make a difference? Well, the answer is actually proclaiming another kingdom. A kingdom that if we belong to it first above every other culture and nation, that it makes the way we relate to other nations and the cultures that we're in much better. See, cultural transformation doesn't come from preaching moralism by saying to the world, you just got to be a better person. You just got to do better stuff. The whole Old Testament is full of the law, the Ten Commandments of God and the whole Levitical law. And what did it do for Israel? Well, it showed them their sin. It showed them they couldn't keep up with it. Pointing people to living a better life, doing less bad stuff, even if it's what God says is bad stuff, is not going to change the world around us. But what will change the world? is pointing people to the one true and living God who came and died in their place and took the penalty for their sin. To see that there is a King of kings and Lord of lords. To see the world around us recognize that there is one true form of morality and it comes from the God who is living and active and speaks through His Word. As we get to the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul deal with this issue of how these multi-cultures that are living in Athens come together and what they think is right and wrong. And we see him proclaim the answer. Come to Acts 17 with me as we'll go through this chapter and look at the way Paul does it. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and those who, who worship God, as well as in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what's this ignorant show-off trying to, trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities, because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus, which is this, this big stone rock, that sits and it looks up to the kind of the Parthenon in Athens. You see all the, the Parthenon there and all the idols and statues to the other gods. You kind of get why he's going, whoa, these people think these statues are their gods. He stood at this Areopagus where people kind of debated ideas 
And he says this, people of Athens, I see you are extremely religious. I mean, look at the size of their buildings. The signs of their idols, they're huge. For I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship. I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, He is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, Jesus, He has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and determine their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find Him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Notice Paul doesn't go out and say, stop doing all this really dodgy stuff, guys. Just, if, you, if you just you know, stopped kind of sacrificing to idols or um, selling your children into this area or that area, he doesn't talk about the morality of what is going on at all. He goes for the heart of the problem. You're worshipping the wrong God. There is one God, the true and living God, who made the universe, who is God over all nations and God over all cultures. And that God has come and lived and died and risen from the dead and He is coming back to judge the living and the dead. You need to come to Jesus. That's what you need to do. See, Jesus' kingdom, it's not about a particular race or nation or culture or custom. It's about recognizing who is the King over the whole universe. Jesus himself told Pilate in John 18 that his kingdom was not of this world. So they can't be like a Christian nation. We shouldn't think about, oh, God's going to bring back all the the Old Testament laws as kind of the moral ones, and then we're going to have a nation that's going to enact them, and then we should kind of force that on others. You can't force people to become Christians. You can't say, oh, you've, you've got to do this. Well, think about us. The only way that we have changed who trust Jesus is because of God's Spirit coming in us and molding us and shaping us. Understanding who He is through His Word, just living a Christian life, is not going to do anything for our relationship with God. No, Christians must live in a world of God and Caesar. We must both give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And that doesn't mean that we can't proclaim Jesus to Caesar to the governments and the officials that are around. We can't, it doesn't mean we have to hold back. No, we, we proclaim who He is and what He's done, and that is our responsibility. And we can call on the governments to act rightly and justly for the benefit of all people. And nor, nor does it mean that we can't pray for the governments. And that's exactly what the New Testament tells us to do, to pray that there might be peace, that the, that the gospel might go out, because our key focus is not creating a new society, a new government that's morally Christian. It's pointing people to God's Son, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and will come and judge the living and the dead, who roars out as the Lion of Judah, the one who died in place. It also doesn't mean that we need to stay when things 
go on when, when things are wrong. In fact, we should speak up. We should use our voice to pursue justice and campaign to remove things that will bring the wrath of God down on our land. But our loudest voice, our most clear and compelling case, must be to always point to the king. There is no lasting value in living the king's way if you don't know the king. There is no lasting value in living the king's way if you do not know the king. For death will be our end and then we will face judgment. But if you know Jesus, if you have trusted him, then it is life that lives forever. Living the king's way only is just moralism and it doesn't work. So let me ask you today, who is your king? Is it your nation? Is it the culture that you're a part of? The things that you see yourself as really belonging to? Or is it the true and living God? If you're here tonight and you're checking out who this God is and what Christianity is about, I want to encourage you to look to Jesus, to see what he has done and who he is, that he's the one who made you and sustains you. And I want to encourage you to come and treat him as your king. Recognize that before God, we deserve justice because we've all rebelled against him. We've all set ourselves up as our own little gods and made our own morality. And that's incredibly offensive to the true and living God. But that Jesus has come and died in our place, is offering you life and forgiveness and hope that lasts forever. Come to him. Come to him. And if Jesus is your king, will you tonight make him the focus of your attention and your action? seeing that he is king over all nations and all cultures. Irrespective of whether the kings of earth listen to us, we must keep proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. We must keep calling individuals to come and recognize him as our first priority, as we then seek to love the world around us and show God's justice. But if Jesus is not first, it matters diddly squat. And as we do that, we'll find that our true citizenship Our ultimate culture is shaped not by our nation and our surroundings, by this particular group or subgroup, but by being made more and more into the likeness of Jesus. That's true. We don't lose our national identity. We don't lose our culture. We see that in Revelation 21, there's people from every tribe, language, people and nation gathered around the throne. It's not like the distinctions disappear, but they're transformed and shaped by God's morality. And if we trust in Jesus, our identity is caught up in the fact that we are now gathered in his kingdom, around the throne, looking forward to the day Jesus comes back, when justice is perfectly delivered, where we find true forgiveness in the king's death in our place, where his resurrection we find life that does not end, and in his return we see the finality of justice given and all the wrongs of the world righted. Friends, that allows us to be people who are not victims of, of a nation or a culture, but people who can transform it through the pointing people to Jesus. Well, as we get to the last part of this section of Amos, we see God is the God of all nations and cultures. There's one more thing we need to notice, one thing that will prep us for what is to come. While God cares about justice out there in the world, in the nations around Israel, it's not the only place God cares about justice. The book of Amos begins describing it as the words concerning what Amos saw regarding Israel, right? But so far, he's just been smashing the nations around. Where does Israel fit into this? Well, if you look very carefully at this map and the nations around Israel, the nations that he's talking about smashing, God starts 
by talking about Damascus, right up there in the north. The next one he speaks of is where? Gaza, down south. And then back up to Tyre, then to Edom, then to Ammon, then to Moab. God is kind of like circling in. Do you know who's next? Boom. (laughs) So when you're tempted to sit there and think, I'm so glad I'm not like the other nations, be very careful. For next week, God is going to speak to you. Let's pray. Father God, tonight as we hear your word in the book of Amos, we are so thankful that you're a God who speaks. A God who has let us know what is right and what isn't. You haven't left us in the darkness of making up our own lives, but you've spoken and most clearly through your Son. We pray that tonight you'd show us where we are letting our our national identity or our culture override serving you as our King. Would you help us to be people that are that are eager to ask one another and to, to look at our lives and see where we, we're not putting Jesus first, where, where we're living in these ways that are rebellious against you, but thinking that it's okay. Lord, help us to say no to rebellion against you and yes to your justice. And most of all, let us look to Jesus, where we can see our sin is forgiven and that we have a great hope and a great future. And let us proclaim him as people who are uninhabited, living in your world, speaking of who he is and what he's done. Lord, we pray that you would be the center of our lives and the focus of our action, that we might live in your world as lights so that people might see how great you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.